from Matthew chapter 28. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan. They gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Holy Spirit, of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded of you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Good morning. My name's Stephen. I'm uh, one of the ministers here. Just before Mark was uh, talking about elections during the All Ages spot, and I don't know about you, but... um, I've never really enjoyed election time that much. It just seems to dominate everything for so long. I know some people love it, but I find it kind of uninspiring. I sort of struggle to know what the issues are that everyone's debating, or probably more importantly, what the issues should be that they should be debating. And I struggle to know who I'm going to vote for. And now that I have kids, and they've reached a certain age, election time is even worse It's unbelievable. Every car trip sparks a million and one questions. Who's that guy? Richard Harvey. Are you going to vote for him? I don't know. What about that? Olivia Sarvis. I'm not sure. What about Frances Bedford? No, I'm not going to vote for Frances Bedford. She's not even in our electorate. Oh, hang on a minute. Now she is for some reason. And then this year, things are even worse. Suddenly, Tony Zapier's face is on the Stoby polls. And would you believe it? The questions have started again. Except now, not only do I have to explain the difference between Labor and Liberal and and Greens and One Nation, but now I'm having to explain the difference between state government and federal government. 
I thought schools would explain this sort of stuff, but apparently not. And I'm pretty sure the whole time my kids are sitting there in the back of the car thinking, I'm going to Google this when I get home because I don't think this guy knows what he's talking about. (laughs) Choosing our our leaders, you know, it's a wonderful privilege, democracy's great and all that, but let's be honest, it's a little bit, tiny bit irritating as well. And the thing that I find hardest of all is that most of the time I don't really feel like any of the options are that all that great. I, I don't feel super confident in any of the leaders. I'm not sure any of them are who I really want. Now, if you know the Easter story, then you'll know that one aspect of what happened all those years ago is that Jesus is thoroughly rejected by almost everyone as their leader. He's not at all the king they want, and and they've got no doubt about that at all. Over the cross, the the Romans post a sarcastic notice that said, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. On his head was a a crown, but it's made out of thorns. Jesus is so thoroughly rejected as their king that this is a hilarious joke that they all share. Now, we know that the Liberals got smashed here recently, but Stephen Marshall got off lightly compared to this. This is such a thorough rejection of Jesus that they kill him in one of the most cruelest ways possible. And even Jesus' closest followers, they don't reject him outright, but they desert him down to the last man. But not, as we'll see in a minute, down to the last woman. But despite this complete rejection of Jesus that that you see in the story, what I'm hoping that we'll see this Easter Sunday is that while Jesus was not the king they wanted, he was the king they need. And I want you to walk away today with exactly that same message ringing in your ears. Jesus may not be the king that we want, but he is absolutely the king we need. That's what I I hope you hear me saying. And I want to spend the next short little while showing you from Matthew's account of what happened, why Jesus was the king they needed and the king we need. We're going to follow in the footsteps of, of these women who were very much in the minority because for them, Jesus actually was the king they wanted. And they're devastated that what they wanted has all been lost. Look at verse 1 again. Matthew writes, After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Now, these women are impressive. This is a a man's world, a violent, dangerous world, but they're there in the dark, on their way to a tomb of a person that the whole city wants dead. That's courage and that's devotion. But, you know, even though they are so impressive, the fact that they're grieving the loss of Jesus, it means that they've missed something about him. It shows that the kind of king that they really wanted deep down in their heart is not actually the kind of king that Jesus knew he needed to be for them. We see this next, actually, in what happens in in the very gentle words that are spoken to them at the tomb. Just as they're drawing close to the tomb there's there's another earthquake maybe an aftershock from the earthquake on Friday 
But we see it's more than just a, a geological event because an angel rolls back the stone and sits on it, which to me just seems a bit funny. And it's supposed to be funny, actually. It's amusing. Because the Roman guards who, who were put there to make sure that Jesus' body didn't go anywhere, stayed put, they're shaking worse than the ground was. And then they're frozen like dead men in terror. And the women, they arrive at this scene and, and the angel says to them in verse 5, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen. And here's that gentle corrective just as he said. It's a very gentle corrective for these amazing women. How many times had Jesus told them that he was going to die and then rise again? Over and over again. But none of them could get their heads around it. And I bet you if they were being honest, none of them wanted him to be that kind of king. Even for the fo- these most faithful of his followers, Jesus was not the king they wanted. Not like this. But what we'll see is that he was the king they need. And so it needed to be exactly like this. I don't know about you, but sometimes the story of Jesus rising from the dead, it it sounds so odd, you know, kind of weird and unnecessary. It sort of depends what angle you look at it. But sometimes to me, it it just sounds weird. For some people, it sounds impossible. You know, it sounds silly because people just don't come back from the dead. Mind you, that's the same kind of thinking that that made it so hard for the disciples back then to accept this. And it actually lends weight to the credibility of their testimony because in their culture, this wasn't something that they could easily accept. It was the opposite. But I reckon most people don't have this kind of problem that I'm talking about with the resurrection of Jesus. I think most of us realize that if God's real, then of course he could bring Jesus back from the dead. Why on earth would something like that be difficult for him? It wouldn't be impossible. When most people struggle with the resurrection, it's not because they think it's, it's too hard for God. It's because it, it's hard for them to understand why God would do things this way. Why would he bother? It just seems a bit odd. Like if I told you Elon Musk was going to launch a rocket into space, but he was going to do it from my backyard with one of my chickens in it, now, you probably wouldn't believe me. Not because it's impossible for him to do, and he just seems that kind of character who'd do something like that. Although you'd be thinking, why? Why Stephen? Why would he bother to do it in Stephen's backyard? For many people, Jesus' resurrection feels kind of like that. God could do it, but why at an unknown garden cemetery would someone come back alive with the only witnesses being a few meathead soldiers who can't really think for themselves and a few loyal but not especially important women? If you're missing why God would do things this way, then welcome to the party. You're late, but welcome. That's pretty much exactly where every single person in this story is at at this point the women the soldiers the leaders in jerusalem the disciples themselves there's no doubt this isn't what we'd do if we were god but that doesn't really worry him this is god's plan done his way 
Because this is Jesus being not necessarily the king we want, but absolutely the king we need. And we're going to very briefly see three ways that Jesus is the king we need. And I've just got to warn you that these three moments, these three ways we're going to see, they're a bit like the icing on the cake. The cake is everything that's come before in in Matthew's account of Jesus' life. And really, you you need all of that to make sense of of these three things. But we don't have time today to go into all of that. And so today, we're just going to eat the icing. And I know this is a really terrible illustration to use on Easter morning after you've already had way too many Easter eggs, especially Joel. But stick with me. The women show us in this the first reason why Jesus is the king we need. And this is the reason Jesus' resurrection turns grief to joy. Look again at verse 8, where we see it in their story. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. They go from Jesus grieving that Jesus failed to be the king they wanted to finding out that there's no need to grieve because Jesus is actually the king they need, a king greater than they'd realized. And this joy here, it's more than just the joy of finding out he's not dead. They know instinctively that his resurrection means something massive has changed. And so look at what happens when they actually see Jesus in verse 9. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, that's not normal, and worshipped him. Before they were devoted to him as a leader and a teacher, but never before had they worshipped him like this. And like I said, this moment, this, this grief becoming joy, it's just the icing on the cake. Because as you read all of Matthew's gospel, what you see is that this has actually always been a huge part of Jesus' mission. He's a king come to turn the grief of his people to joy. Not just for a moment. His mission has always been to kill all grief forever. And his resurrection is the moment that proves that to them that proves to them that his mission will be successful. Let me just sort of explain how how this moment works a little bit with a kind of silly illustration. I remember um, a few weeks after I'd met Kathy, now my wife, um, I wasn't really sure if she liked me or not. But I had this really awkward friend um, and he said to me one day, it's so obvious that you like her, hurry up and do something about it already. Now, that kind of sent me into a bit of a panic for some reason. I think I kind of thought, well, if my awkward friend had noticed, then probably everyone else had noticed, and Kathy had probably noticed, and if I didn't do something soon, I was going to lose my chance, if I even had a chance. So I, I ring her up to see if she wants to go for a walk. Not very creative, I know, but that was me. And unfortunately, when I rang, she wasn't there. And so, stupidly, I leave a message one of those kind of bumbling messages where I I couldn't even remember at the end of it if I mentioned going for a walk or not. And I'm kicking myself for the hours afterwards, kind of tortured, just waiting. And in those days, you wouldn't believe this, but we didn't have mobile phones. Well, actually, Kathy did, but it was kind of like this large brick thing where um, you never made a call on it because it cost $50 a call or something like that. So it took a while for her to get back to me when when she got home to hear the message and then for me to be home and take the call. 
And so when I finally did take the call, and she says, yes, I would like to go for a walk, that moment was critical in our story. I went from tortured to elated. Now, she'd only agreed to go for a walk, right? But I knew what that meant. It was a signal. It was a sign. It meant that she wasn't completely opposed to the possibility that one day we might be able to go out. There was a chance. Now, we might wonder what on earth God would be doing resurrecting a man who died back to life. But when you understand this true story as it unfolds in history, you see that this is a critical moment. This is a a sign, a signal to them that through what Jesus has done, God will turn all grief to joy. And it's not a signal that there's a chance that their grief will be turned to joy. This is concrete proof that Jesus is that kind of king. His resurrection guarantees that if he's your king, whatever grief you face, he will lead the way in one day turning that to joy, a joy that never ceases. I mean, think about that. The grief of loneliness, the grief grief of sickness or loss or inadequacy or addiction, self-loathing or abuse. Jesus' resurrection is God's sign. He's proof to you that you don't have a chance of joy. You have it guaranteed if he's your king. Now, it would be nice to really stop and savour this, but there's more icing that we need to keep eating, along with a few lollies on top as well. So we need to keep moving. Because next we see in the disciples' story, the the disciples show us the, the second reason why Jesus is the king we need. And the next reason is because Jesus' resurrection turns failure to forgiveness. Look at verse 10. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Now remember, Jesus' disciples, they weren't like these women. They'd sworn to Jesus that they'd be there to the bitter end, but then they'd failed. And even before they'd failed, though, Jesus had told them that he would meet them on the other side of his death in Galilee. And now via these women, he's telling them that no matter what they've done, He's still going to meet them on the other side in Galilee. He's telling them their weakness, their inability to stand for him and for the truth and and for what's right. He's telling them their failure of him means nothing to him. Doesn't even register with him or to God as even a reality now. No failure they've ever done or ever will do or even ever could to, will register to God as a barrier to him now. While ever they have Jesus standing, living as their king, they will only ever hear, them, hear him say to them, you're forgiven. And here's my point. It's Jesus' resurrection that proves that to them. You know, if Jesus had, had only died for their failures and that was it, Even if he'd told them that that would win them forgiveness, they'd have never known it. 
But when Jesus takes on his shoulders every failure of every person who comes to him, and when he dies for that, but then stands alive again and tells you, all failure is now forgiven while ever you're with me. When he meets them in their failure, while they're still scattered, cowering, still unfaithful, and he says to them, meet me where I always said I'd meet you, he proves to them that he turns their failure into forgiveness. Now, I don't know if you can feel the radical weight of that or not, but it's also true for us too. No failure of yours or mine, past, present, future, is relevant to God. Because Jesus lives, he can actually meet us in our failure. And he will always meet us in our failure, not holding judgment, but holding forgiveness. Now, for those who who won't come to this king, to Jesus, their failure is their own. It's held against them. But for those who do come to him, Jesus' heart meets us most powerfully in our failure. You know, if Jesus' passion for us, took him to the cross in order to be able to hold out forgiveness to us, then why would we think in those moments when we actually need his forgiveness that he's not passionately burning with the desire to forgive us? He's the king we need because he lives to forgive us and to go on forgiving us. Sometimes we think that after we've come to Jesus that if we fail him again, or if we fail him again and again, that he'll lose interest in us. One day he'll just get sick of us and and just give up on us entirely. But that kind of thinking is crazy. He's the king we need because he runs to us where we're at, with compassion when we fail. Look at what actually happens when Jesus' disciples reconnect with him in Galilee. In verse 16, we read... Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Can you believe that? Some doubted. It's not that they doubt that Jesus is resurrected. It's that they're not yet convinced that Jesus' resurrection proves that he's worth worshipping. They, they just still don't get it. But their failure isn't met with anger. It's met with forgiveness and it's met with a mission. If you're still struggling to see the significance of Jesus and his resurrection, can you see you're in good company? It's exactly where some of the disciples were. And have you noticed, even as we've been reading this today, the the odd little things like this in Matthew's account of what happened? These strange moments, they they actually show you that what we're reading really happened. Matthew doesn't soften how he and the others look when they fail Jesus. He doesn't even change the fact that some of them are doubting. Matthew doesn't change the fact that the women were the first to see Jesus resurrected, even though in their sexist culture the sad reality was that the testimony of of women wasn't valued like that. If you're going to make up a story to try and fool people, you don't start with an idea that's culturally unacceptable, like a historical resurrection. 
You don't make the witnesses, the people that your culture finds unreliable. You don't give details that make you personally look like a fool and a failure. You don't volunteer alternative conspiracy theories like we heard. And you certainly don't share that some of you were struggling to believe right at the very end of the story. But that's what Matthew does. Because he's recounting what actually happened. Jesus turns failure to forgiveness. There's one more reason why we see that Jesus is the king we need. We saw with the women that he turns grief to joy. And we saw with the disciples that he turns failure to forgiveness. Finally, we see with, with the whole world that Jesus is the king we need because Jesus' resurrection turns defeat to victory. Look at what Jesus says his resurrection proves to you in verse 18. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. For Jesus, friends, that the cross was a disaster. And for his enemies, the cross was a joke. But for Jesus, it's something completely different. For Jesus, the cross was his coronation as the king we need. And the resurrection, he says, is the beginning of his reign as that king. A king who's already won the victory. That's what this means. Already won the victory because he already has all authority. But he's a king who wants us to share in his victory. And so he leaves a time to all of us in which we can leave behind defeat and join him. Have you ever thought about what, what lies at the heart of defeat in this world and in our life? I mean, it always comes back to one thing. Whatever you want to call it, selfishness or greed or evil or pride or abuse or using others, whatever name we give it, God calls it sin. And wherever we find good defeated in this world, which we find all too often everywhere, even within our own hearts, you'll always find sin there. In this world, sin or death, or both, always win in the end. And you can prove this to yourself. How would you even begin to try to get the victory over your sin or over your death? It's impossible. That that kind of battle can only ever end in defeat. Now, I know that this sounds pessimistic, and, and so we usually try to paint things another way. Like death is a natural part of life. Or life is, is what you make of it. Every cloud has a, a silver lining. Or you can't enjoy the ups without the downs. And there's truth to these things. But if you were at the funeral of a child, would you dare say one of them to their parents? If you're talking to a survivor of, of, of um, the war in Ukraine, or even... When we tell ourselves these things, our hearts feel the emptiness of them. They don't soften the pain of the defeat of this world. But Jesus' resurrection tells you something different. Jesus' resurrection is God declaring to you and to the whole world that sin and death will not triumph in the end. 
Jesus living, breathing is God's proof that something else is possible and not only possible, but inevitable. It's not a question now of if Jesus will turn the defeat that we feel in this world to victory. It's only a question of whether we'll stand with him in this victory or if we'll stand against him in defeat. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he's the king we need because he wants to share this victory over sin and death with us. And it's why he tells Matthew, who writes this down, and all of the disciples who were there, go and make disciples of all nations. He's a king who wants to share this victory and is giving us time to see that he is the king that we need. Now, like I said this morning, I've been trying to get you to eat icing, like the icing off a cake with a few lollies thrown in there as well. And it's a really sort of disgusting and kind of cruel image to, um, to force on you on Easter morning. I'll just make it a bit worse with that picture. And if you're like me, you've, you've probably already had a month's worth of um, chocolate by 10 a.m. already, although my kids would probably point out that's me most days. And if you're feeling a little bit queasy every time I say the word icing, I reckon that's fair enough. But my point is that today we're talking about unbelievably amazing, true things that are are life-changing. And in the end, though, they're dependent on each one of us reaching a point where we can say in our own journey, yes, Jesus is the king I need. Now, if, if you won't see that, he won't force himself on you. But to take that in here and now, that he's the king that you need, it's it's kind of like trying to eat icing off a cake on Easter Sunday. There are better times to eat icing, with the cake still attached and a coffee as well. And I reckon it's kind of like that with Jesus on Easter Sunday. Even if you suspect that, that there might be something to this, to what Matthew is telling you about Jesus, right now it's just really hard to take that in. So I want to finish just by giving you two great ways to keep thinking this kind of stuff through one would be to read an account of jesus life his whole life with with someone who actually has come to that point where they know that jesus is the king that they need read it with them as a kind of tour guide for you who can point things out to you like matthew's gospel the other great way is is to come along to something we call looking into life with jesus which happens at Zito Cafe at TTP on Thursday nights. We're going to be running that in a month and a half. This is the kind of place where you can look into Jesus' claims, the evidence for his claims, the difference he actually makes to life. It's the kind of place where you can ask any question, express any opinion, and it's fine. Both these options are good options. But whatever you do, if you're not sure if Jesus is the king that you need... Make sure you take one of them. Because I tell you what, it doesn't take much to see that what our world really needs is a king like the king we've seen today. A king who turns grief to joy, failure to forgiveness, and defeat to victory. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus, for the unexpected joy and triumph that the resurrection is. Lord, sometimes as we we look at 
Jesus' death so long ago, so far away, shrouded in so many ways to our minds and our hearts, it can just feel like it doesn't resonate with us. And yet, Lord, this is your plan. And when we look closely, we're astounded at the, the comfort, the joy, the future and the security that Jesus really has won for us and guaranteed, guarantees us. Lord, we pray that you would move us ever closer to you, ever closer to Jesus, our King, to rejoice in his victory and to rejoice in his forgiveness of our failures. We pray in his name. Amen.